All right, the story is told. The story is told of a Charlotte, North Carolina lawyer who purchased a box of very rare and expensive cigars, and then he insured them against fire, among, uh, among other things, including theft and things of that nature. Well, within a month, having smoked his entire stockpile of these great cigars, and without yet having made even his first premium payment on the policy, the lawyer thought, hey, you know what? I got an idea. He filed a lawsuit against the insurance company. In his claim, the lawyer stated that the cigars were lost, quote, in a series of small fires. <laughs> the insurance company refused to pay, citing the obvious reason the man had consumed the cigars in the normal fashion. The lawyer sued and won. In delivering the ruling, the judge agreed with the insurance company that the claim was indeed frivolous, However, the lawyer held a policy from the company in which it had warranted that the cigars were insurable and also guaranteed that it would insure them against fire without defining what is considered to be acceptable fire. So the insurance company had to pay $15,000 to the lawyer for his loss of the rare cigars lost in the fires. The good news is, after the lawyer cashed the $15,000 check, the insurance company had him arrested on 24 counts of arson. (laughs) And with his own insurance claim and testimony from the previous case that was used against him, the lawyer was convicted of intentionally burning his insured property and was sentenced to two years in prison and a $24,000 fine. I love that story. Because in a humorous way, it reminds us that no matter how smart we think we are, we cannot outsmart God. We just can't. And I thought of this truth as I resume my study, you know, in Dr. Luke's eyewitness account of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And if you recall throughout Luke's narrative, we've seen numerous occasions and encounters that Jesus had with foolish men who mistakenly thought they could trap Jesus with baiting questions. And as we pick up where we left off in Luke chapter 21, we realize there's no way that man can ever outsmart God because God knows the future even before yet we experience it. And if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 21, we're going to look at verses 20 through 28 where Jesus gives his disciples a glimpse of the future. Luke 21, starting with verse 20, we read these words. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of the city depart. And let those who are in the country enter, not, not enter into the city. Because there are days of vengeance in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword, and they will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and stars, and upon the earth dismay among nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves." Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. You know, as a reminder, this section of truth was prompted by the disciples' question regarding the majesty of the, of the temple. If you recall from verse 5, while they were talking about the temple, 
it was, uh, and how it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts. He said, as, as for these things which you're looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. And he began to tell them about events that will take place in the future. And as they were leaving Jerusalem and walking down the, you know, the Mount of Olives and looking back, undoubtedly, they were looking back on this majestic building, the structure, the temple, all the buildings that surrounded it. And they were, uh, they were amazed as people are at physical things. And the, the disciples said, man, you know what? Isn't that an awesome building? Isn't that tremendous? All the facilities and, and just what a beautiful structure that is. And Jesus looked at it and said, you know, yeah, you know, it's a beautiful facility and structure, but there's a day coming where not one stone will be left upon another. And so they didn't doubt what he had to say. They said, well, when when will these things be? And, you know, when will these things take place? And he began to talk to them about the future. And and obviously, as, as we read this passage, it becomes very difficult to understand because, as you'll note, as you go through the Bible, that oftentimes from God's vantage point, everything just kind of runs into each other. For example, when Jesus was first introduced into the temple and he took the scroll of Isaiah and he began to read it. He began to read about how the fact that he had come had fulfilled all the promises that God would send a redeemer or savior into the world and that they had come. But when you read Isaiah 61, he stopped at a very critical moment because as he continued to read the passage, it was talking about the day of vengeance or the day of judgment upon the world. And that day had not come yet. In John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, where it says that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. It goes on to say, and God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, for the world had been condemned already. But God sent his son into the world to save the world. There's a window of opportunity. And the Jewish listeners at that time understood very clearly that there are basically two ages. There's the present age, this age, which they thought was corrupted which was basically uh, not redeemable, which was evil in and of itself. And that there was a day that was coming downstream in the future. There's today, this age, and there's, you know, it's like now and then. And there was a day coming where God would send a savior into the world and, and, and the, the Jewish nation would be, uh, you know, risen back to a place of supremacy among the world's people. And that day was coming and they were look for, looking forward to that. But in between, there was a period of time and this period of time is called the day of the Lord or the day of God's vengeance. When God would make everything right and he would clean things up and all the wrongs of this world. And the reason that you and I thought that story that I introduced was so funny is because, you know, when we're created in the image and likeness of God, every person has a sense of justice built into their spirit, into their person. The reason that we think things are right and we think things are wrong aren't because they're taught to us or told us, though those things will reinforce those. But there are things that are inherently right and inherently wrong in our own systems, in our own, in our own being, in our own souls, in our own hearts. And we look at something and we say, that's not right. There's something wrong about that. And we go, well, what is it that makes something right or something wrong? It's because God has created us in his own image and his likeness. And there's a sense of fairness. There's a sense of justice. There's a sense of what is right. And there's a sense of what is wrong. Now, we don't always know what those things are, whether something is right or isn't right. We may think something's right and it may just be our own opinion. But, you know, in the overall big picture, that's why no matter what culture in the world that you go to, there are things that you can, we can all agree with. That's wrong. And the world cries out and says, you know what? No, what we see happening in Sudan is wrong. What we see happening in parts of Africa is wrong. What we see happening in Afghanistan and Iraq is wrong. And the rest of the world comes and we, and we struggle with who are we to decide what is right and who, who are we to decide what is wrong. And it has to do with a worldview. And either you have a worldview that we are all created in the image and likeness of God as our creator. And our country was founded on, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Or you have a worldview that says that, no, we've evolved out of whatever it is, and so therefore each of us are on our own to decide what we think is right and what we think is wrong. And there's something within the heart of every person that says, that's nonsense. That's not right. That's not right. When we see somebody hurt another person, when we see somebody lie and cheat and steal, we say, you know, that's not right. And it's just not because it's not right when it happens to us. That's when we clearly see when something's wrong. But we can see it when it happens to someone else. And we say, you know what? That's not right. 
And then we say someone needs to do something about it. And what God says, yeah, well, you're that someone. And so we begin to recognize and understand that there's this period of time where God would make all wrong things right. But we get confused as we read through the Bible, and this is going to be a good passage for us as well, because there are, there are different times that are being discussed, and they all blend in together, and sometimes we confuse these things, and we misapply them because we think this applies to us, when it really doesn't apply to us. It was a very specific event that happened in a moment of time, and it applied specifically to them, and, and then this applies to us, and maybe it, even, maybe it doesn't apply to us. And so we got to look at it in context. It's like when we look up at the mountains and we talk about the beauty of the snow-capped mountains here in Southern California. But as you're driving up the 57 freeway and you go north, you'll notice that you see the hills of Yorba Linda. And immediately behind those hills, we see Mount Baldy as if Mount Baldy is right on top of it. And we don't see from our perspective as we're driving north that there's a great distance in between. There's a valley that's in between there that may be 20 or 30 miles of distance. And then the mountains rise again. But from our perspective where we are, we see this hill and that hill and they look like they're right on top of each other. And from God's perspective, as we read this passage and we get a glimpse of the future, you've got to remember to God, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. And so when he looks at it and Jesus starts talking about events that will happen 40 years from the moment that he was talking, he can talk about those events that would happen thousands of years downstream and they would all blend into each other. And we've got to discern and we've got the complete word of God to fill in the gaps for us so that we can say that, hey, wait a minute, he was talking about one event that will be 40 years and then he was talking about another event that, you know what, maybe we don't even know exactly, but we know what he's talking about, but we're not sure of the time frame because we don't know the distance that's in between. And so as we look at this, keep that in mind and it'll help us to more orderly understand this outline that's before you. But when he start, he's talking about the glimpse of the future, there's a couple of the different specific events that are being outlined in this passage that's peculiar to Luke because there's no other passages that, that, that emphasize what we have in front of us the way that Luke does. Matthew has some, Mark has some. We put them all together and we, get it and we piece it together and we'll have a better and more clear understanding of all of it. But first we notice that he's talking about the sign of the destruction of Jerusalem in verses 20 and 21. He says, but when you see Jerusalem, and this, and this is the wonderful thing about studying the Bible. Sometimes all that you really have to do is just, just read it. It's an amazing thing, and, and, and I highly recommend it. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but something we miss it sometimes. You know, we, we hear all these sermons and we hear these, you know, people preaching on these passages and, you know, and they go off and they, you know, they, they elaborate on all of these things. And, and, and yet when you read it, you go, well, but that's not what I just read. See, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. What was the question? The question was, wow, look at this temple, look at these buildings, look at this magnificent city, isn't this awesome? And Jesus said, there's a day coming where not one stone will be left upon another stone. And they said, when is this going to happen? And he began to answer their question. And so he's specifically referring to Jerusalem, the temple, that that, that geographic location, he says, recognize that her desolation is at hand. Now, if you'll remember, as we've gone through the context here in uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 43 through 40, uh, 44, Jesus said, the days will come when your enemies will throw up a bank before you, surround you and hem you in on every side. And will level you to the ground and your children with you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Why was this going to happen to them? Because they failed to recognize the time of their visitation. Now understand what he's talking about. The Jews looked for the promised Savior, Deliverer of God. That was the great hope of their nation. That one day, the oppressive armies and, and, and oppressive nations that had held them captive for centuries would finally be defeated by God's deliverer. They were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for the consolation of Israel. 
They were waiting for their great hope. They were waiting for what they didn't know at the time. They were waiting for Jesus, but they didn't recognize him as God's deliverer. They did not recognize Jesus as the promised Savior of God. We live in a world not much different, do we? They thought Jesus was a phony. They thought he was a great teacher at a time, but they started to hate him because they recognized that Jesus claimed to be more than just a good teacher. He was more than a rabbi. He was more than a philosopher. He was more than a way of life. He was more than a consciousness or a thought. Jesus claimed to be in flesh the very Savior of the world, the long-awaited Deliverer of Israel, and as it turns out, all of mankind. The Bible said the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and He came unto His own people, the Jewish people, and they did not receive Him as Savior. Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, the deliverer of all of mankind, the Savior of the world, came and walked among us, and either we recognize Him as that or we reject Him. One or the other. What have you done? See, we live in a world that says, ah, Jesus is either He's my Lord and my God, or He's just another person that made a dent in human history and he's no different, no better, no worse than anybody else. Take your pick. They didn't recognize him as Savior. And because they didn't recognize him as Savior, judgment came upon the nation. And that's exactly what Jesus said. There was a day coming where not one stone will be left upon another because you failed to recognize the day of your visitation. As it applied to the Jewish nation, it applies to individuals today. If you fail to recognize Jesus as God in human flesh, your deliverer, your savior from sin, the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead, the one who had come specifically to deliver you from sin, then God's judgment will fall upon you as well. And what Jesus goes on to say is when you see this day coming, when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, recognize your desolation is at hand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of the city depart. And let not those who are in the country enter the city. Because these days of vengeance are occurring in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. That the scriptures would be fulfilled. Remember, there's never panic in heaven. There are only plans. And the Jewish rejection of Jesus as Savior did not catch God by surprise. And God's plan continued forward. The destruction of Jerusalem was a direct result of their rejection of Jesus. It was God's way of getting their attention. God uses judgment and he uses his word to constantly get the attention of folks who are blinded to the facts. God said this is going to occur because the word of God says that it will occur. Now when I read this, the marvelous thing uh, about scripture is that we can bank on whatever God says will happen, that it will happen exactly as he says that it will. And that's comforting. Now, in this particular case, there's nothing comforting whatsoever about the fact that God said you will be judged for rejecting the Messiah and that judgment will take the form of the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, and everything around it. But the fact God said that this is going to happen and Jesus said, listen, here's how it's going to happen and when it's going to happen and here are the signs that are going to happen. Hey, it's going to take place exactly as he says it will. Now, there's not a whole lot of comfort If you are on the judgment end of things. I find the comfort. In that we are also on the blessing end of things. If God says you reject Jesus. You will be judged for your sins. 
and you will be separated from God for all of eternity in a place called the lake of fire or hell, and you will be held accountable for your sins, that's a very sobering reality. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. On the other side of it, I find great comfort in knowing that if we recognize our sinfulness and we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God at the foot of the cross and believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, He rose again from the dead, He is alive today, He hears our prayer, He hears our cry for mercy and forgiveness, and we receive Him as Savior, the Bible says, for those who receive Him or believe upon Him, they will not perish, but have everlasting life. And I praise God because the other side of the coin is, is that God also promises blessing to those who trust in Christ. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? You can look forward to all the blessings that God promises to those who are His, adopted into the family of God, who have received Him as their Savior. So we can look forward to the blessings. Either look forward to the curse and the destruction, or you look forward to the blessing and the renewal by trusting in Christ. This isn't a good thing for the nation of Israel. This was a very terrible thing. If you recall from our recent series of messages, you know, God often leads his people into detours, dead ends, and dry holes. To, to bring us to the point of desperation. To break us so that we will recognize our great need for God. And the same people who curse God for the difficult things in their life don't realize what a blessing it is and, and, and how merciful it is for God to bring you to the point of desperation where you recognize your great dependence or need to depend upon Him. Let me give you some practical examples. If you have a serious illness and you have never come to recognize your own sinfulness, but now you start to look at your mortality and you start to wonder what is ahead for me when I pass through this life and enter the next, and you have no peace or assurance or confidence of what, the, what lies ahead, and you begin to realize that, you know what, I'm in deep trouble. And that illness has brought you to that point of desperation where you cry out to God for forgiveness and trust in Christ's provision on the cross and the power of His resurrection and you're born again by the will of God, not by your own efforts and you become adopted in the family of God, a child of God by believing in His name. Then the most wonderful thing that ever happened to you was that you got sick. If you lose a job, if you have financial difficulties, if you have marital problems, if you have a problem with a child or children, whatever those difficulties are that bring you to a point of desperation, that drops you to your knees at the cross of Jesus Christ, and you cry out to Him for mercy and forgiveness, whatever those things are, are the most wonderful, merciful blessings and generous gifts from God that you will ever receive because otherwise you could just cruise through life and think you have no need of anything or anybody and drop dead of a heart attack and be facing God a perfect and holy God and give an account for your life and you're going to lose so isn't it a wonderful thing now it's a matter of perspective because people will read this passage and go what kind of God would turn Jerusalem upside down. What kind of God would do this to supposedly His people? If the Jews are God's people, and this is what God did to the Jews, what kind of God is that? And it's easy to see how people can see that way. Because having eyes they cannot see. And ears they cannot hear. And they don't see God as you and I who have trusted in Christ and are now a member of His family. They don't see Him as we see Him. And we're going to see this as we go through this passage. Because notice the suffering that will come upon Israel. And this is a difficult passage to read. Woe to those who are with child. This frightening concern for all mothers, to those who nurse babes in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to the people. This great catastrophe for the nation, a great distress upon the land. And notice, a wrath 
to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword. A fatal consequence will take place for many. Josephus, the noted Jewish historian, says of the day that came in 70 AD when Titus came and overturned all of Jerusalem. 1.1 million people died. 1.1 million people. Children. And mothers, boys and girls, men and women, 1.1 million. It says, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and they'll be led captive into all the nations. Josephus says that 97,000 of those who survived were taken into captivity and enslaved by the nation that that encaptured them. The magnitude of that is just mind-boggling to me. He said that, and they'll be led into captivity, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. There was a continuous captivity, and there was a prolonged conquest of Jerusalem by Gentiles. And I want you to notice again that there was no panic in heaven, but only plans. And this all occurred so that Everything that God planned would come to fruition. And it would be until the time of the Gentiles would be fulfilled. Don't miss out that God graciously warns folks how to flee the wrath that was to come. He said, if you believe me and you take me at my word, when you see the army surrounding the city, then it's time to take off. Drop everything and get out of Dodge. Is not God gracious enough to warn people today? These are the signs that God is in control. These are the signs that if you reject Jesus Christ, you will perish. God's word says it. See, they were always searching for a sign. Where the Jews always, well, give us a sign. Jesus said, a wicked generation seeks a sign, but those who are truly hungering for God will just take him at his word and act upon his word. And so if God, you say that Jesus is your son, your savior, and the evidence is overwhelming that he proclaimed himself that he was, and he demonstrated that he was by these miraculous works, these signs, these wonders that that people were in awe of, and even to this day... And he said the greatest sign would be the sign of the resurrection, Jonah, that Jesus would come, come out of the tomb three days later and he is alive today. He's saying that if you want to flee the wrath to come, you've got to believe God's word, you've got to take him at his word, and you've got to act upon it today. And you've got to repent of sin today. And you've got to trust Jesus today. And you've got to believe that he died on the cross for your sins today. And you can't buy any, any more of the nonsense that, you know what, as long as you're sincere about what you believe, all roads lead to heaven. No! One way, one person, one name, given to men under heaven by which men can be saved. It is the only way. And everything else is a lie. And, and it's deceptive in nature in order to continue to pr- promote the deception that you can go any way that you want and God somehow or another at the end of the day still has to forgive you and allow you into heaven. And the Bible says no. Jesus said when you see these signs, then you take off and you better run. Now we notice this, that God's warn, you know, God warns of judgment and those who heed it will escape. Which I love because the 4th century uh, historian Eusebius records this about Christians. Notice what he says. The people of the church in Jerusalem were commanded by an oracle. I like that. That was God's word. Jesus said, hey, when you see this happening, here's what you need to do. He said they were commanded by an oracle given by revelation before the war to those in the city to depart and to dwell in one of the cities in which they called Pella. To it, those who believed in Christ 
migrated from Jerusalem, that when holy men had altogether deserted the royal capital of the Jews and the whole land of Judea, the judgment of God might at last overtake them for all their crimes against the Christ and his apostles and all that generation of the wicked be utterly blotted out from among men. Notice what he said. Those who had believed in Christ and therefore took him at his word when they were living in Jerusalem at the time and saw the armies of Rome surround the city, they remembered what Jesus said, they dropped everything and they got out of town and they were protected from the slaughter that was about to take place of the 1.1 million people who died by the edge of the sword. Why? Because they believed what God said and God protected them from the judgment that was to come. It's no different today. We believe what God says. He protects us from the judgment that's to come. How do you know if you're truly in Christ? Jesus said, if you love me, what? You obey my commandments. Here's the litmus test of genuine Christianity in a culture that has watered it down to just name it and claim it or whatever it is. The genuine test, litmus test of Christianity has always been and will continue to be the same and that is this. If you are genuinely born again, a child of God, to those who believe in His name, you will be obedient to the Word of God in your daily life. If God says don't do it, you won't do it. If God says do it, you'll do it. Why? Because you believe what God has to say and you act upon it. And that is building your house on solid ground, the Word of God. We live in a culture today that says you can claim to be a Christian and live any way that you want. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches if you really are a Christian, you will live according to the principles that are outlined in the Word of God. If you say you believe God's Word and live any way that you want, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. You've got to examine yourself right here and right now. And if you truly know Christ, the Holy Spirit of God is convicting your heart even as I speak about some of the things that you are doing in your life that are wrong before God. The Spirit of God continues to tell you, stop doing it, and you continue to argue with Him, you'll do it anyway. Now praise God for the conviction. Some of you are listening to me saying, you know what, I can do what I want, when I want to do it, and just that rebellious hard heart is indicative of the fact that you have never come to know Christ. If you love Him, you obey His commandments. If you believe Him, you'll act upon His Word, and when you act upon His Word, He will deliver you from impending judgment to those who do not. Eusebius made it very clear. Those who were in Christ, those who were genuine believers, when they saw the armies come, they split and got out of town because it had been revealed to them ahead of time what it was that God told them they should do. And they did it. And they were delivered. Hallelujah. Same with us today. If we will just do what God says to do, we will be delivered. Now, before moving on to this next section, I want to point out bad news for the Jews was great news for you and I who are Gentiles. Because the time of God's judgment upon the nation was so that the time of the Gentiles may be fulfilled. Now, we've got the book of Romans that clarifies this passage. Because in Romans chapter 11, if you'd like to look at that with me, Paul clearly gives us insight as to what Jesus was referring to as we read Romans chapter 11 that deals with the nation of Israel because God's not done with Israel. And the wonderful thing about it is, is that everything is right on target as far as God's plan is concerned. Unfortunately, they, they've gone through a lot of grief uh, that was unnecessary but yet at the same time, God knowing this in his sovereignty, he says in verse 25, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, which is heaven. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. 
And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So here's the deal, folks. All of us who are not Jewish by heritage, ancestry, can praise God for the stubborn, stiff-necked people, the Jewish people, who rejected Jesus Christ and they did not receive him even though he came to his own. Because the Bible says that during this period of time where the Gentiles would dominate, and some think the fulfillment of this happened in 1948 where Israel was regathered again as a nation, but there was a window of opportunity and with that in mind, they look forward and say, you know what, the time of Jesus Christ's return is not far off because there is a period of time, this window, where God said, hey, you know what, while the nation of Israel rejects Jesus as Savior, God is doing a work gathering you and I, the Gentiles, to himself in faith in Christ. Now, how long will this occur? Until that time is fulfilled where every Gentile that God knows will be saved comes into the kingdom of God. And at the end of that time period, then God continues to move forward with his plan. And this is what we see happening here. When is that time period fulfilled? When Jesus returns to the earth. The second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, you see, here's that gap that we see in between. You say, well, you know what? Well, how does this apply to us? Well, let me tell you something. What happened in 70 AD doesn't apply to us directly at all. That's something that happened in a moment of time. We weren't living in Jerusalem then. We didn't see the armies of, of Rome marching around the city. We didn't have to get out of town. We didn't have to flee from the army. It doesn't directly apply to us at all. But what applies to me as I read through this is, you know what? I can bank on God's promises. Whatever say God's going to happen is going to happen. And even though it happened 40, only, only 40 years into the future, sometimes we in hindsight look back and we miss the significance of this. And that is that Jesus, when he was referring to the destruction of Jerusalem, did so at a point in time where everybody around him could not see that it was going to occur, but God did. It would be like us sitting here today and, and, and being told that in the year 2040 or 40 years from whatever date it is, you know, somebody saying, hey, you know, this is going to happen and this is what you need to look for. That's pretty amazing. So when they lived long enough and God's people were living in Jerusalem, lived long enough to see the fulfillment of this prophecy, they knew to get out of town. Does it apply to us today? No, because it happened at that moment in time. Now, here's another section that we look at and go, well, how does this apply to us? Well, what he's talking about is when the time of the Gentiles will be fulfilled, when Jesus returns, and now we get to the signs of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and now all of us kind of go, oh, oh, what is this? And we get a little more excited because, you, you, you know, we think that it immediately applies to us. And what we're going to find out is it really doesn't apply to us at all. But let's read it anyway. And some of you are going, What? I, I love it when I throw out stuff like that because I already got people who want to argue with me. <laughs> and, uh, and there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and upon the earth dismay among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and of the waves. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. All right, so let's look at these things. First of all, he talks about the changes that we have going on before us. There's changes in the physical universe. Flip with me to Revelation chapter 6. And notice that the same, uh, the same uh, word picture that we're given in the Revelation of John. When he writes about these end days, these last days, these days of the tribulation, this great time of the wrath of God. Uh, the day of our Lord. In Revelation chapter 6, notice in verses 12 through 14. And I looked, and when he broke the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. The whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its upright figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a squirrel when it rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. Notice the same wording that we have here and you go back to Luke chapter 21. There will be changes in the physical universe. And what he's saying is, hey, for those who are alive during the great tribulation, 
for those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, which we see will take place during that great time of the wrath of God or the day of our Lord. For those who are alive then and you see these signs in the heavens, it'll be no different than the Jews who lived in Jerusalem in 70 AD. When they saw the signs, they knew what was to come. For those who are alive during the tribulation, when you see the sun turn dark and you see the moon and all the changes that take place in the universe and you see the, the stars start falling from the sky then know that what God has said is about to take place and take comfort in the word of God and the promises of God. But for those who don't know him, they will faint with fear. There will be confusion that goes on. There will be confusion among the nations. There will be global distress. And we see it in Revelation 18 where the world will be turned upside down. And those who are alive, the consternation in the hearts of men in verse 26 will say that men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things that are coming upon in the world. When you go through a study of the book of Revelation during the tribulation period of time, there are going to be people who are alive during those days that are going to be so afraid of what is happening. They're going to want to die to escape the fearful hearts that they have. And God will not allow them to die. That is the fear that will be in the hearts of men when God turns this world upside down. And these signs that will be there that are, that are given to us in the Word of God are to be believed as everything else that God says. They will happen exactly that way. There will be a collapse as we notice in the heavens and we see where the stars will fall out of the sky. Virtually everything that Jesus says in this section is quoted from Old Testament material. If you go back through it, where he says that I will show you wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and deadful day of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 13, Ezekiel 32, Haggai 12. And in the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 3, we'll look at in closing. He says that this is what you can look forward to, those who are alive during the great tribulation. Again, will there be signs? Hey, these are can't-miss signs. But you know what? People will miss them anyway. And you know why that is? You want a sobering reality of what signs do to the hard hearts of men? Turn with me to Revelation again. And look at chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9, verse 20. And this was after the sixth trumpet. And it says, in the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, notice this, did not repent. They did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and brass and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor their immorality, nor of their thefts. Chapter 16, the same thing as God pours out his vengeance upon the world. In verses 9 through 11. And men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent as to give him glory. Verse 11, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and yet they did not repent of their deeds. People who look for signs today reveal a heart that's hard before God. It's an evil generation that seeks signs. Because why? If you're looking for God, He's not far from any one of us. If you're truly seeking Him and searching Him, the book of Acts says in, in chapter 17, hey, all you got to do is look because you'll see Him because He's not far from any of us. Jesus said He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And the word repentance means to have a change of heart and mind, a change of direction. So when a person recognizes their sin and they repent before God and they turn from the direction that they're going and they turn and they make a, a 180, when they turn around, guess who's in their face? Jesus, who has come to seek and to save that which is lost and pursues each one of us. As we repent and turn to God, God is right there. And what he's saying is all these signs in the universe, these great signs, reveal one thing that God knows about the human heart. That you could give all the signs in the world, but they will not move a heart that is hard and will not repent of sin. That's why Jesus said, you're not getting any more signs, people. The great sign of God is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
First Him crucified, then Him resurrected. You're looking for signs that God is real. You're looking for signs that God hears your prayers. You're looking for signs. All you've got to do is look at the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And He's shouting, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe upon Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Those who are alive during the tribulation, who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, will see these signs and they will praise God that God is in control of all things. In Revelation 7, there will be those who repent of sin and they will be alive during the tribulation. And that's why Jesus says back in Luke, he says, you know what? When you see these things take place, straighten up and lift your heads for your redemption is drawing near. What's he talking about? And how does this apply to you and I? I got great news for you. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, this passage does not apply to you at all. Nor did the one in 70 AD. But it applies to us from this standpoint. That we can believe what God says. That we look for not signs as God's people today, but we look for the coming of a Savior. We look for our blessed hope is Jesus Christ. We don't need any more signs. While the shadow of signs falls upon the world, and the world tries to discern what they mean, and every time I pick up a newspaper, I just laugh at man, the wisdom of man and man's wisdom. Man never came to know God. I read something today about one of the moons of one of the planets in our solar system and how maybe it, it'll you know, give us the key to the mysteries of the universe in origins. And I just laugh at the foolishness of man who continually tries to figure out who we are, why are we here, how did we get here. And God says, in the beginning, God. God says, the heavens declare the handiwork of God. God says, the very moon that you're studying shouts out God. And you are so myopic that you don't want to see God. You'd rather come up with your own theory. And he says, there's no more signs that I can show you people. In these last days, God spoke through his son, Jesus. And he said everything that he needs to say in Jesus. You and I don't look for signs. We look for a savior. We won't be alive during the great tribulation because the Bible says that we who are alive will be caught up with him in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And in a twinkling of an eye in 1 Corinthians 15, we will be changed in a moment's time. God will remove us and spare us from that great day of God's wrath to those who have trusted in Christ. So we look for Jesus to come for his people according to the promises of God's word. But in the meantime, what are we supposed to do? And that's what I want to close because that really is the issue today. Today, we look for a Savior. And in Titus chapter 2, here's what we're to do in the meantime while we wait for Him. Titus chapter 2. And I can't think of a better passage to close this text. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. He will come for his people. However, we are not to consider his timing as being slow. For his desire is that none should perish, but all should come to everlasting life. We look for a Savior, but in the meantime, 
we represent our Savior as ambassadors to the world around us, sharing with them the knowledge of the mysteries of God, how to get right with God, their great need to repent, their great need to trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone, His death on the cross and the power of His resurrection. We reach people by living a godly life, by denying worldly pleasures, by living sensibly and right before God in this present age. And as we look for the blessed hope and the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, we are to be zealous in good deeds. We reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ by zealously living a life that is right before God. There is probably no greater hindrance to those who are seeking God than to be tripping and stumbling and bumbling over people who proclaim to be His children living a life that's reflective of those who are lost. Will you not commit today to live in light of the glorious appearing of our Savior in such a manner that is worthy of our calling so that when we speak to others about their need to repent, they don't say, but what about your need to repent? When we speak to others about their need to fall upon their knees at the cross of Christ, they don't say, but when will you do that? When we speak about the victorious life that we can have in Jesus because of the resurrection, may we not disqualify ourselves when they look at us and say, then why aren't you living in victory? See, what are we doing in light of the appearance of our Savior for His own? We're to live lives that are pleasing to God, that God uses to draw men to Himself. How are you doing? Maybe it's time that we get right. Let's pray. Father, we humbly come before you. And we thank you that we are spared the judgment of God to those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you that your word warns us how to flee from the coming wrath of God. Vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. And you will. God, help us to live lives that are pleasing to you, those who have trusted in Christ. God, I pray for those who are here that have never trusted in Christ and Him alone for the forgiveness of their sins, that today would be the day of the Lord. That they would hear the convicting voice of your Spirit. God, forgive me, for I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe He rose again from the dead. And I receive him as my Lord and Savior. God, give me the strength. Give me the power through your spirit to live a life that is pleasing to you. Right before you. Sensibly before you. Zealously before you. In such a manner that you can use my life to draw others into your kingdom. Lord, I thank you that we don't have to look for signs. But that we look for our Savior. In the meantime, Lord, may we be found busy doing the work that you had called us to do. May you get all the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.